Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Ian Shepardson with Pantheon Macroeconomics. It's great to have you with us here, Ian. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for having me. Let me start with, with Janet Yellen's testimony today. The, the Democrats on the committee billing this as, as best they could as a, as a moment to hear her on the heels of, of, the, uh, of the election uh, ahead of the FOMC meeting. Let me ask you about that in just a moment here, but let me get to Walmart's earnings here, which just crossed the wire. Uh, Walmart comparable sales here up 1.2%. Uh, Walmart boosts the lower end of the year adjusted earnings per share view. Uh, U.S. comps here up 1.2%. Earnings per share 98 cents. That was in line uh, with expectations. And looking at uh, Walmart here in the pre-market down just slightly at 70 at 99. Ian, back to you here with Janet Yellen's testimony on Capitol. What are you expecting to hear from her today? Well, I'm not expecting it to say anything that would be construed as a policy change uh, or anything that would be construed as a verdict on the election or uh, what's going to happen next. I mean, I'm quite sure she's got 101 different views about what's going to happen next, um, particularly on the fiscal front, where I imagine she's feeling quite nervous because the administration or the new, the new administration talking a lot about fiscal stimulus at a time when the economy really doesn't need it. But she can't say any of that. The fiscal stimulus isn't written yet. It isn't in legislation. We don't know. And she's not in the guessing game, at least not in public anyway. Uh, and I don't think she'll say anything much about interest rates either beyond what was said at the last FOMC meeting, which is that the case for hiking has, has strengthened the data are better, the labor market's tighter. But she's not going to go out on a limb. Uh, she's in front of a fairly unfriendly Congress anyway. Uh, they're not very keen on it. They're not friendly towards the Fed. And I think she'll want to say as little as she can. And she certainly won't want to say anything that could be considered as kind of prejudicial about the incoming administration. I sense it'll be a strange kind of dialogue on, on Capitol Hill today. She may not want to talk about the potential for stimulus or what an infrastructure spending package might look like and the effect that might have on the economy. But I imagine that at least among the, the Republicans on that uh, joint committee, we're going to hear a lot about it. Yeah, it's bound to be talked about, I, but, but she's pretty good at saying lots of words without actually saying anything very much of substance. I mean, this, this is part of the game. I mean, this, this is an art form. Uh, you know, it, it's, like, it's like chess. It's like jousting. Uh, hopefully nobody gets hurt. But um, she's not going to give anything away. Uh, and remember that you know, this is a, a kind of collegiate consensus-driven Fed. It's not like the olden days where Alan Greenspan decided what was going to happen and whatever he said was policy. It's not really like that. Yellen doesn't go in there and make things up on, on, on the hoof and... Uh, she, you know, she speaks uh, uh, about what the Fed has decided rather than trying to tell us what the Fed is going to decide because that's what she thinks it should decide. That's not how it works under Yellen. So she's kind of constrained by the Fed's internal divisions as well as by her own sort of inclination and by the politics because here's a Fed that's come under a great deal of attack during the campaign, mostly from the Republican side, and they're now in charge. Uh, and I, I think Yellen will, will want to uh, perhaps re-emphasize the independence of the Fed. That would be something that she could say that 
that wouldn't be controversial, if you like. But she's not going to go out on a limb and say anything about the, about the potential for fiscal stimulus. I mean, she might make some remarks along the lines of, well, you know, the economy's approaching full employment. That's not really controversial. Uh, and sort of leave that dangling in the air as, as a kind of an idea that, well, maybe, you know, huge fiscal well, stimulus at this point is not such a great <clears throat> plan. Maybe evidence will come up as well, folks, as we get evidence to the December jobs report on to uh, a middle December Fed meeting. Good morning, everyone. David Gurra in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. Just spirited conversations today. I love the conversation we had earlier with Mr. Shepherdson and Steve Major of HSBC on Lower for Longer. We'll redo that here right now. Ruthie and Shepherdson discussing the Fed and, of course, interest rate structures. Where is the terminal value, Ian? And if there are these new lower terminal values of GDP, of yields, et cetera, do they adjust higher because of Trump economics? Well, that is a 60 squillion dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> because we, do, we don't at the moment know what size and what structure the stimulus package is going to be. I mean, if everything that Trump promised in the campaign is done, and that, I've got to say, would surprise me, but if it were to be done, we'd be looking at a stimulus of the order of 4 or 5% of GDP in an economy which is running at full employment. Now, the only way that can end is in an awful lot of tears and an awful lot of inflation and, and much higher interest rates. Having said that, I still don't think rates would go to where they were at the last cycle when they peaked at, at five and a quarter because the private sector, especially the corporate sector, is carrying a lot more debt than it was back then, and it will take a lot smaller increase in rates to tip it into recession. But the problem is, of course, that the market is pricing in very little. So the danger is not that rates have to go back to the sort of numbers that scared us you know, a few years ago, but just that they have to go substantially higher than markets expect, and that requires a substantial possibly a very substantial repricing of risk across the whole yield curve and ultimately in the stock market as well because right now we've got a kind of a, a split situation where the bond market is saying clearly that it thinks yeah. inflation risk has gone up <clears> but <throat> the stock market is saying party party because of the fiscal stimulus. And what does that signal to you? Yeah. It's a brilliant. Why is there that dichotomy uh, between two that are supposed to be linked? Well, I think in the medium term, they will prove to be linked. But the bond market tends to get more nervous about inflation quicker than the stock market. The stock market wants to party when the government's spending lots of money or when the government's talking about spending lots of money and also cutting taxes. Consumer-facing stocks, manufacturing stocks, construction stocks, defense stocks. This is great. Party, party time. Um, and think about the hangover a bit later, whereas but the bond market tends to think about the hangover first. The bond market tends to be less exuberant and more concerned about the aftermath. So it sees the inflation risk coming, uh, and the stock market is at the moment focusing much more on the spending side. But eventually, you know, these two separate markets live in the same universe, and they will come together. And the danger is that they come together with a substantially bigger rise in yields across the whole curve, uh, and the stock market uh, having some sort of event, you know, later next year when, uh, when the inflation pressure and the rate pressure kicks in. Ian, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater said he thinks that the 30-year has topped out. Or, or do, you, do you agree with that forecast? How much has your forecast changed here in light of what we saw last Tuesday? Well, I've raised my forecast fields. I think I was already towards the top end of expectations because I was looking at the tight labor market and the acceleration in, in wage growth. Bear in mind, by the way, that the Atlanta Fed's measure of wages, which is a, a pretty sophisticated measure, is up at 3.9 euro a year now. That's a really big acceleration. So that's before we get any stimulus from the new administration. So I had some pretty high yield numbers, but I've moved them higher. And honestly, right now, if you were to tell me that the 10-year note is going to peak at 3.5 or maybe even 4%, mm. I probably wouldn't push back that hard. And that's going <laughs> to put the 30 you know, mm. well above those sort of levels, which is, yeah, which is a scary thing. Ian, if we get 
trump GDP, which he boldly stated in, I believe, two of the three debates, if we get Trump GDP given demographics, can we sustain it or is it a one-off condition? Oh, it's, I think it's a one-off. You know, if you, if you talk to, to Trump people, what they'll say is that this acceleration in, in demand through the fiscal stimulus is going to pull millions of people back into the labor force and productivity growth is going to pick up. And honestly, I would love that to happen. Nothing would make me happier than seeing two or three million people who left the labor force, given up looking for work, coming back in and finding jobs. That would just be fantastic. But I just don't see it because already, mm-hmm. before any stimulus, we've got small businesses all around the country through the NFIB survey screaming at us that they can't can't find the people they want to hire. Now, if those two or three million people outside the labor force really were substitutes for the existing workforce or good enough to hire, they would have hired them by now. So simply pumping in a huge amount of demand into this economy, I don't think it's going to magically create its own labor supply. Ian, have you been to Arbolor on Spey in Scotland? Uh, Not recently. (laughs) Should I I have been? (laughs) Yes, you should have been. David, I have learned that that is where Walker's Pure Butter Shortbread cookies come from. Uh And I I think I may not be at work on Monday, David. I think that I may have to digress north to the Scottish heartland, highlands rather. I got to wear a kilt. I'm going to our Abelor on Spey. I'm hearing reports of a butter shortage in the UK. Is a butter shortage. <laughs> exactly. And I believe it's within shouting distance of McAllen Scotch, so uh. I can kill two luxuries uh, with one stone. <laughs> David Gura here in New York. Tom Keene in London. We're with Ian Shepherdson, Chief Economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And Tom, I'm struck reading the, the papers this morning uh, how the conversation about this stimulus package has changed. You're hearing a lot of lawmakers uh, urging caution, urging mm-hmm. people to be more patient, uh, that it's going to take a while to put this thing together and, and uh, a yeah. while longer <clears throat> still for the economic effects of, uh, of that to play out. Let me put that question to, to Ian. If we get one of these things to the tune of $500 billion to, to a trillion dollars, when do we begin to see the, the economic impact? Well, I remember under the Bush administration, there was a tax cut that was uh, implemented by sending everyone a check in the mail. So you can actually do these things very quickly on the tax side. Um, The infrastructure side is much more difficult and takes a a great deal longer. So the ideal stimulus package, not considering that we don't actually need one right now, but if you were going to implement the stimulus package and you wanted it to have an immediate effect and a longer-lasting effect, you would have some sort of immediate tax cut uh, at the very beginning to come through straight away to make people more confident and, and to yeah. convince them you're actually doing this thing. And then later, that, that fills the gap so that later the infrastructure stuff comes through. If all you do is infrastructure, then it's going to take a long time for people to feel it. But I would be amazed, absolutely amazed, if that turned out to be the package that we get next year. It will have tax cuts. The guy that owns the high ground on this, Ian Shepherdson, and you may know him as Matthew Shapiro at the University of Michigan. He's Klein Professor of Economics, or Lawrence Klein Professor of Economics. And Matt has done fabulous work on the flows of these gifts from the government. Don't we just save it? Don't we do a Robert Barrow and just save because we know it's a fiction? Well, some of us will, uh, undoubtedly. Not everyone's going to spend the money straight away. But if you send uh, you know, a, a check for the same amount to everybody, then people at the lower end of the income spectrum are going to spend it spend more it. or less uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember as well that, that, that people you know, on median incomes haven't had a, a real pay raise for a very long time. 
And so something that uh, looks like, uh, and smells like free money, I think, is going to be spent uh, immediately, or almost immediately, by, by most of the population. You know, if we'd had 20 years of strong income gains and people had strong balance sheets, then, yeah, they wouldn't spend the money. Um, they'd be more inclined to save it. But, but right now, after a very long period of real pressure on people on medium or, or below incomes, a much bigger chance of it being spent. That doesn't mean, by the way, I think it's a good idea. You know, I think with an unemployment rate of 4.9 and wages accelerating, the last thing the U.S. needs is a big fiscal stimulus of any sort. The time to do it was three, four years ago. It's, it's the wrong thing at the wrong time now, but they're going to do it. We have to think about the consequences, and my guess is that a fair bit of it will be spent pretty quickly. We're getting some reads on, on inflation this week, CPI data coming out at 8.30 Wall Street time. Give us the, the Ian Shepherdson preview there. What are you expecting to see today? Yeah, well, the headline number is going to be popped up a little bit by uh, gas prices rebounding. Um, and the core, I think, will be, will be pretty unexciting. But the core rate's already at, at two and a quarter and rising. Uh, the headline is where the excitement is, because that, I think, is what most people think of as inflation. You know, we in this business talk a lot about the core, but for most people, it's about the headline inflation rate. That's what's going to be on the front page of the, of the papers tomorrow morning. And uh, it, it's going to move a little bit higher uh, in the report today, 1.6, 1.7. But the really interesting thing is what happens over the next few months. Because by February, March time, we're looking at a year-over-year headline inflation rate of about two and a half. Now, right. Bear in mind that a year ago, it was exactly zero. So to go from zero to 2.5 in the course of 18 months is going to look and feel and sound to most people like a real acceleration. Now, the, the fact that most of it is an unwinding base effect from energy prices is irrelevant. Right. Uh, the way that it's going to appear to most people is going to be as a clear acceleration yeah, in inflation. Ian, if I get... If, if I get Wait, if I get inflation, do I guarantee positive real wages? Isn't the arch risk here wage disinflation? Yeah. I mean, isn't that the key risk for Mr. Trump? Well, my guess is that the labor market is so tight that what will actually happen is that people will, will for the first time in many years, will be in a position to go, uh, go to their bosses and say, hey, I need a raise to, to cover me for this rise in inflation. Now, you couldn't do that at any point since the crash because there was too many people out there who could replace you if you knocked on the boss's door and said, give me a raise. But I think that era has come to an end, and that's why wage increases have already picked up quite smartly after five mm -hmm. years of going nowhere. So they're rising, and that's telling you the labor market's tight. And we also know from history that when you get moves to the upside in inflation, or to the downside as well, those expectations become right. embedded in, in the wage data. And I'm really nervous that we're seeing this rise in inflation at a time when people are feeling a, a bit bolder about asking for raises and at a time when just down the line we're going to see substantial fiscal stimulus. Well, so if I was sitting in the Fed shoes now, I think I'd be getting pretty nervous about the labor market. I just, Ian Shepardson, thank you so much. Pantheon. Thrilled to have you with us today. David Gurr, I just made up a chart. I'll use it on Bloomberg Television tomorrow. I'm going to send it out uh, right now. If you assume 3% inflation, the ECI wages and benefits hasn't been positive since the summer of 2008. Wow. With just 3% inflation. So you've got to have rising wages to get to a legitimate, positive, real wage given Trump inflation. We'll continue from London in New York. This is Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr in uh, New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. A.J. Rajaduk's with us now with Barclays, and they've trotted out their new global outlook. A.J., 
I believe a week ago on Thursday, did you have to rewrite your global outlook at like no 11 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> 11 p.m. Tuesday night? Yes, we did, and uh, the single biggest driver was obviously uh, not just the Donald yeah. Trump victory, but more importantly, <laughs> that we are now looking at a world with significant fiscal expansion in the United States next year. We think. Within that fiscal expansion is the amplitude of expansion. Obviously, we're discounting a level of expansion now. Are we discounting the correct level? So uh, that's a good question, and it's not easy to answer. We are basically Agreed. assuming that that he will get most of what he's asking for, but not to the same magnitude. So, for example, it's not just tax cuts, right? He's asked for as much as... 5% of GDP. We don't think he'll get that, but we think he'll get 2%. In the past, he was called for 45% tariffs on China. We don't think he will actually do that, but we think tariffs will be high enough to be punitive, but low enough to be prohibitive, and we assume proportional responses. So you're right, a lot of assumptions go into our somewhat more uh, optimistic outlook for the next few quarters. Tom was talking with, with Steve Major at HSBC a few minutes ago on, on surveillance on television, and one mm-hmm. of the things that uh, Steve Major said was, you know, there, there's a lot that's uncertain right now, but he, I think in his words, couldn't afford to wait for more detail before changing his bond yield forecasts. Do you feel similarly here that, that there's the, the, yes. the pressure to, to change something now in light of what we've seen? Well, I wouldn't call it pressure in terms of simply marking yourself to market. It's more that... Some of the facts on the ground have changed. There will be fiscal expansion in the United States. We can dispute the magnitude of it, right? <clears throat> the, the fact of the matter is that term premium in bond yields has unwound. So our forecast – now, having said that, I will tell you, David, we think that uh, markets have actually done a pretty good job repricing bond yields to levels that we think are now close to fair in this new political configuration. Tens at two and a quarter in the first quarter of next year seem about right to us. I look, A.J., at the the dynamics of the bond market, and I guess some of it comes down to the point where we've had free money for years. Uh Is your call of a new rate regime enough to upset the M&A apple cart? No, because uh, it might slow it down some, but uh, we do not expect a further new violent repricing in in global bond yields. (coughs) And as importantly, Tom, remember that this is a late cycle expansion. You know, the yep. United States has had seven to eight years, right? So logically, you're looking at 2018 <clears throat> being the point at which the economy goes into a slowdown. And next year's fiscal expansion should tack on another year to 18 months. But it it doesn't change the end game that much. It probably changes the Fed's hiking cycle by, by you know, a few more hikes. But that's about it. I don't think that is enough to, to upset okay. them in the Apple card. David Gura here in New York with Tom Keene in London, joined by A.J. Rajadyaksha of Head of Macro Research at Barclays. And A.J., let me let me ask you about what you're seeing when you look at dollar strength. Tom mentioned uh, above 100 here at 113 right now. How long do you expect that to continue? How much higher does the dollar have to go? So it's had a nice move upwards. It'll probably stabilize around here for a few weeks. But as we go into the first quarter, everything seems to be still lining up, you know, in favor of the dollar, whether it be fiscal stimulus, higher bond deals in the United States, the prospect of somewhat more aggressive Fed hikes, the U.S. growing better than most of the countries. So against countries like, you know, currencies like the euro, for example, or against most emerging market currencies, at least until the Trump trade agenda becomes clearer, 
we think the dollar still has room to go upwards. What's the, the, the business cycle look like to you right now under, under a, a President Donald Trump? Uh, how much longer do you think it'll be uh, when he comes into office? So before the elections, with the prospect of no fiscal stimulus, because we were assuming that a Clinton presidency would not be able to pass something through the House, right? We were looking at a business cycle probably turning down at some point in 2018. And one can argue that that has been pushed out by at least 12 to 18 months if he gets this fiscal expansion that we think he will. I just, uh, you know, A.G., I, I look at, at the dynamics here and the if or the hope of fiscal mm-hmm. expansion. Come on, it's a legislative process. Does a pro like you have a clue what that vector will be of quote-unquote fiscal expansion? So, so usually it is more difficult, no question, but there's two unusual things about President-elect Trump, right? The first is that his party does have all of the levers of power now, right, including in Congress, and there has been a willingness on both sides to use the constitutional option, the nuclear option, if you will, to push things through Senate if, if they need to, right? So the legislative process, I think, is likely to be less of a hurdle from that standpoint. And the other thing is, one can argue, Tom, and this is a judgment call, admittedly, he has a lot more political capital given his come-from-behind victory and given how much he's focused on things that, like tax cuts. We think that will probably get done, not at the level he's asking for. But I would be very, very surprised if fiscal expansion is not reality next Okay, year. so within your global report in 25 people fighting like cats and dogs in a room, I mean, we know how these things get made. Can Barclays establish a 3% plus GDP vector right now? No, no. We, we, we think, because remember, we are also assuming that there will be tariffs and economic drag, at least near term, from tariffs. And for that, he doesn't need legislative approval. So the vector that we are establishing is somewhat stronger growth, maybe another you know, 25 to 50 basis points over what you would have had uh, you know, prior to the elections for 2017. But more importantly, that that continues in 2018. The, the real story here is the lengthening of the business cycle as opposed to a 3 3.5% growth number next year. AJ, I imagine that we're going to hear from the Fed chairman today, Fed chairwoman today, that uh, that she's adopting a wait-and-see approach when it comes to this this fiscal stimulus package, that uh, she's going to say precious little and uh, you know, probably not going to comment too much on, on speculation that we'll get an infrastructure package. So uh, are central bankers watching what's happening here? How about overseas, other economies, paying attention here to how this process goes, thinking perhaps of adopting something similar themselves? Well, it's actually the, the, the political consensus around fiscal stimulus had arguably started to turn even before a Trump presidency, whether you look at Japan, China, the United Kingdom, which has walked away from fiscal consolidation after Brexit, and even parts of Europe, which might not be expanding fiscally, but none of them are adhering to their agreed-upon targets when it comes to fiscal deficits, right? So I, I think you're right. I think the chair will be cautious to make sure she is not part of the news story. She will probably well, use boilerplate language, like fiscal expansion is a good thing if it happens. I'll yeah. leave it at that. We're math-free on Thursdays, AJ, <laughs> but let's at least go ex-ante, ex-post. Mm-hmm. With this revolutionary election, and I say that with respect for the president-elect, AJ, does our central bank become ever more ex-post, ever more waiting for evidence? Uh Yes, uh, not just in terms of what happens with the economy, but also in t- they will also be watching 
movements in Congress that they think might abut against central bank independence. So yes, they are very much in a wait-and-see mode on both sides. They will also be looking at who the president-elect nominates for the two seats on the Federal Reserve Board. That will be a signal of his approach to the central bank. Let's talk strategy here a little bit, talk allocation. Uh, how have you adjusted or recommend adjusting portfolios here in light of, of, of the changes we've seen here since Tuesday? So if you remember, Tom probably remembers this, uh, last quarter, which was uh, only about eight weeks ago when we put out the previous quarterly, we had gone away from fixed income into equities, you know, for the first time in a while. And, you know, it's better to be lucky than smart. We never thought that you'd have this magnitude of a move higher in, 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 in bond yields. We are still underweight fixed income. All we are saying is you're not going to see this, you know, this new, a new violent repricing of the magnitude that you've seen. And we like U.S. dollar assets, both equities and credit. So both of these assets, right, there are two conf conflicting factors. On one, you have the prospect of somewhat better fundamentals. But on the other hand, you do have higher interest rates, which are in low interest rates have been one of the reasons why valuations have been so elevated. So that's the offsetting factor. We think the first wins out, at least in 2017, especially with the prospect of regulatory relief for the equity sector and, and corporate mm -hmm. tax cuts. AJ, help me here with the linkage of your global report into dollar. Do we see level dollar, stronger dollar, or brutal move dollar? Uh, stronger dollar, at least for Q1, and then it probably stabilizes. Virtually, versus virtually every other currency, the one currency that makes me a little cautious is the Japanese yen, where they've had trouble... Uh, generating inflation, but everywhere else the tide seems to be turning, and that is dollar positive. We focused on, on political risk here and, and the effect on policy in the U.S. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Europe and all the elections we have on the, the agenda here over the next 18 months. Uh, how, how big is that risk, and, and when you weigh that versus the potential for, uh, say, problems with Donald Trump's trade policy, which is the bigger risk? So we think the probability of something bad happening is low. If it moves in that direction, the consequences are very high, and, uh, you know, it's a very good point. Investors who are looking at European politics and saying, oh, I'm going to ignore it, because look what happened with Brexit, look what happened with President Trump, right? It was, there were surprises, and financial markets have been more than fine, so I'm not just paying attention. We think that's actually a big mistake, because it is a significant deal, we still believe, for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, but it would be a huge deal if a Eurozone country started to move in that direction. And that is the prism through which elections in Europe should be looked at next year. Both in the Netherlands and in France, you have prominent political parties who are very visibly anti-EU. And if <clears throat> market implied right. probabilities of one of them leaving increases, that's a bad thing. A.J. Rajadak, thank you so much with Barclays. Congratulations on your new report. And uh, great to go over that. David, I think it's time that we really bring all of our listeners worldwide into the making of the sausage. Uh -huh. Can we do that? Here's, the way, it, here's the way it works, folks. And you wonder how we don't cut each other off. Our wonderful producer, YUN, yes. is in our ears telling us who's next. And we sometimes step on each other. Yeah. And it's all about keeping the conversation going. It's different when I'm in London. Yes. Because what is critical here is YUN allows me to eat a Walker shortbread while you're asking questions. <laughs> I mean, we got to be honest here. He goes, David, next. And I'm, I, David, I'm like, yes. And another Ken, Ken, Ken potting you down just slightly as you're crunching on that. Yeah, as I crunch so away on a Walker shortbread. I mean, that's the reality here. <laughs>
of the grind. Excuse me, the grind between New York <laughs> and London. Why you again is the most important person on the planet. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. In this hour, the most controversial Fed president, Mr. Kashkari of Minneapolis, has darkened the door. David, to save every second, why don't you go right now to President Kashkari? Yes, he joins us here in studio. Neil Kashkari, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, out with a new report, the Minneapolis plan. It's being called here about how to end too big to fail. We will get to that uh, in just a moment. But let me dispense with the politics quiz quickly because I have to here. We are very close to 56th uh, and 5th, where Trump Tower is located. Have you been? Are you going? Uh, any contact with the Trump uh, Trump transition team? Oh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. No, I've had no contact with the Trump transition team or the any of the campaigns uh, beforehand as well. All right, very good. Um, I want to ask you about the, the political rhetoric surrounding the Fed, what we heard on the campaign trail, the degree to which that echoes through the halls of the Eccles building, or if the marble is thick enough that it that it doesn't. Uh, how does how does the Fed interpret what is being said about the Fed? Well, we hear the concerns, and I understand the concerns. The Fed is a, you know, monetary policy is a complex thing. The Fed historically has been somewhat mysterious. So we're doing everything we can to be more transparent, to explain to people what data we're looking at, why we're making the decisions that we're making. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, I'm in the room, I'm participating in the FOMC meetings. Politics simply never comes up. And as I look at the data, I find myself agreeing with people on the other side of the political spectrum in that room who are also objectively looking at the data. And so I'm very proud of the Federal Reserve. And I think if people could look behind the curtain, they too would be very proud of our institution. Of course, they can't look behind the curtain. So what do you say to those when you're walking around uh, Minneapolis or St. Paul, elsewhere in Minnesota, talking to, to folks in your district about the Fed? How do you make that point to them? How do you make them understand the apoliticalness of the Federal Reserve? Well, I just described the fact that 103 years ago, Congress created this institution. They created 12 different reserve banks because they wanted a diverse of opinion, not all the power concentrated in Washington, D.C. And then Congress has given us a dual mandate, stable prices and maximum employment. And then I walk through, here's how we define that. Here's the data we look at. We're, we're all committed to achieving our dual mandate. And that's what's driving our decisions. Neil, you are not the typical Fed president. You are the mechanical engineer from Illinois, and you darken the door at Wharton for a time. Help me here with your interpretation of rules versus discretion. Where is the institution going long after Kashkari exits? Well, I think that we have to be pragmatic about these rules. So just take the Taylor rule as an example. The last four years, if we'd been following the Taylor rule, millions of Americans would be out of work today. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're undershooting our inflation target. So the last four years, the Taylor rule has been dead wrong. And so if we were forced mechanically to follow this old rule, Main Street would have been suffering because of it. And so I'm proud of the fact that the Federal Reserve yeah. looks at these rules, 
doesn't completely ignore them, but then we also apply judgment and common sense to say, is this the okay. right thing to do for the country? And, and you know, I want to make clear, President Kashkari, uh, uh, folks, uh, is much like Jean-Claude Trichet. There is an advantage, many would suggest, to leavening the fungibility of economics with the plug and chug of engineering. What's it like being an engineer at the desk at the Eccles building? I mean, you don't think the same as they do, do you? Well, it's interesting. I, so we have a, a wonderful team of economists at the Minneapolis Fed that I talk to, you know, all of these issues and we debate back and forth. I feel like the fact that I'm not an economist means I get to come in and ask some very basic questions and push back on some of their assumptions that most yeah. economists just accept. I'll give you an example. You know, when we look at economic growth, most economists say, well, all that matters is growth per capita. And if you look at Japan, Japan's economic growth per capita or per worker looks pretty good. So I push back to the economists. I say, okay, then why does it seem like the Japanese people and the Japanese policymakers are so frustrated if on a per worker basis they're doing really well? Because I, the engineer, would argue it's not just per worker that matters. Aggregate growth matters, too. How do we get aggregate growth yeah. going again? David, it's just amazing to think of the partial derivatives that launch out of Kashkari's <laughs> office in <laughs> Minneapolis. Also interesting to think of the tweets. I, I, I wonder what you think the future of Fed communication is. You, you are very active on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter. You respond to, to folks who ask you questions about Fed policy. Uh, we don't yet see Fed Chair Yellen on, on, on the social media platforms. But uh, is that where we're headed? How does communication change in the future? Well, I'm trying to lead by example. I'm trying to experiment new ways of engaging the public to enhance transparency. And if they work and I don't get myself in trouble, I'm <laughs> hoping that other people will follow and say, hey, you know, we can do this too. And it's not too scary. So far, Twitter has been working. You know, I did a, a, a Q&A session on Twitter a couple months ago with the hashtag Ask Neil. Mm. And I expected to just get Twitter snark. And you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Instead, I got 95% of the questions were really serious, substantive questions and a lot of genuine back and forth. That was great. And I'm going to do it again. And so I think we're all looking for better ways to engage with the public. And I'm hoping I can be a, a leading voice in that way. You released a plan yesterday on, on how to end too big to fail, did it with a speech at the Economic Club of New York. And, and let's start by talking about the environment into which you've, you've released that plan. There is talk from the president-elect here about doing away with, with, uh, with, uh, with Dodd-Frank completely. Do, do you expect that there will be a serious conversation about the, the future of financial regulation? And, and uh, what's your hope for how this plan is going to be received? I think there is going to, I think now actually, I think we got lucky. Now is the right time to have this conversation. You've got people on the right and left who agree the biggest banks are still too big to fail and they're not happy about that and neither am I. You've also got Chairman Henschelling in the, in the House who's put forward his plan, which mm -hmm. does increase capital requirements for banks. I think Chairman Henschelling is headed in the right direction. Our plan says we need to go further. We need to be tougher on the banks than he is, but at least he's headed in the right direction. And so it feels like now might be a sweet spot to take a fresh look at what's been accomplished will, and what sh where we should go. Will your policy force bank combination in the United States? Is Kashkari of Minneapolis much like Jackson of Nashville from another time and place? Well, I don't know if it'll be bank combination or it'll be bank separation. Uh, I think it'll force most big banks to restructure themselves, or many will choose to. But if they really do have the economies of scale and scope that they claim to have, they'll be able to afford to hold more capital. If they can't afford to hold more capital, their economies of scale and scope is just smoke and mirrors. Yeah, it's, this is interesting, folks. And, David, the key issue for me and what the president just said there is scale. Mm. Scale is the strange thing in this debate. 
part of what you've proposed here, uh, President Kashkari, is raising capital requirements to 23.5 percent. What would the effect of that be on R star? Well, that's a good question. I, it, it may modestly bring up R star uh, in terms of the natural rate of interest where things clear. We think overall cost of borrowing will go up somewhat in the economy, but we, we measure this on a cost-benefit analysis. If you look, the cost of a financial crisis is massive, around $28 trillion of GDP, $28 trillion for the U.S. economy, 158% of GDP. So what we've analyzed is if we had a modest increase in lending rates, actually society is better off if we then avoid that terrible financial crisis. And these are the trade-offs that ultimately the American people need to make. How healthy is the the financial system now when you look at it? Not to say that uh, safe enough is good enough here, but uh, is it measurably safer than it was, and and why aren't you satisfied with where things stand? It is measurably safer. So we've analyzed, you know, the IMF has a database of the history of financial crises. We've used that database to analyze where we were before the crisis and where we are now. Ten years ago, there was an 84% chance of a financial crisis in the next century. We've now reduced that risk to 67%. Uh-huh. But there's still a 67% chance of a financial yeah. crisis in the next century. Our plan gets that down to around 10%. Right. Neil, you're without question the most competent dynamics analyst within the Fed. Your aerospace work at TRW from years ago and your fiscal work at Treasury. Do you believe in dynamic scoring? Our Brendan Greeley with a great article this week on dynamic versus static budget scoring. Where's Kashkari on this? You know, I'm, you're not going to like my answer. I'm probably somewhere in the middle because I've oh, seen... Oh, you're killing me. Come on. <laughs> you know, what are you, a Fed president? I've seen dynamic scoring used to to sell, you know, I'll, I'll sell you a bridge in Florida with dynamic scoring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then sometimes it can just be too conservative okay. if you ignore all of the dynamic yeah. effects. Congratulations on your effect on our economy. President Kashgari, would you do something about the Minnesota Twins? I mean, would you just Early do something? Still, yeah. Listen, my, uh, unfortunately, I was uh, born and raised in Ohio, and I'm unfortunately a lifelong Browns fan. And so first and foremost, i got to get the Browns a win. They can't go 0-16 this year. Tough yeah, I've, I've watched a little bit of that. <laughs> David, take, take us out here with Neil Kashkar. Yeah, Neil Kashkar, thanks very much for joining us here today. Our next guest is criticized because he deals in the minutiae, and that's what you get when you're with S&P Global CFRA, except Sam Stovall has been so dead on and so sick right that everybody loves to bathe in the Stovall minutiae. <laughs> so, Sam, I believe you observed the election night we observed. Within your minutiae, what changed with a Trump victory? Uh, hey, Tom, good to talk to you, and uh, thanks for, uh, I guess, the intro. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, you do, you do, Sam, you do minutia like no one. Sam, it's What's a compliment. Changed? It's a compliment, yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, what, what changed was I think we had a, a lifting, uh, if you will, not just because the uncertainty is now over, but a, a lifting of all of the, the uh, dampening worry about increased regulation, whether it uh, had to do with um, more <clears throat> financial regulation in general on the banks yeah. in particular, uh, whether you had it to do with price controls on pharmaceuticals and biotechs uh, combined. <clears throat> 
with tax increases pretty much across the yeah. board, and then finally a push up in expenses in terms of the likelihood of uh, mandated yeah. increase in minimum wage. So I right. think a lot of that just got relieved, and uh, investors are okay. now saying, wait a minute, the clouds have parted and there are blue skies ahead? Page two? I sound like Paul Harvey. Sam, let's go back to page two, where you absolutely kill it on history in a time where nobody knows history. I mean, nobody can even get back to Kennedy 1960. You go back to Wilson, Taft, Roosevelt, and classically, like your father, you nail the political analysis into the equity markets. What did you learn about Republican this, Republican that, Republican Trump? Well, what I learned first off was that because the market was down 2.2% from July 31 through October 31, as I reported in my sector watch and investment policy notes, it implied a Republican victory. Second part is that once the uncertainty of the election is over, uh, the market tends to gain about 2.3% on average after the incumbent person or party has been replaced, which is what we're seeing right now. So, yes, probably get that. Uh, end-of-year rally that will continue. But once we head into 2017, there is a bit of a worry because the the five times that we had first-term Republican presidents, the market was actually down 2.7% on average and rose in price only one of five times. And going back to your college roommate, Woodrow Wilson, uh, what I <laughs> did find <laughs> was that uh, every Republican president since Teddy Roosevelt experienced a recession um, in their first mm-hmm. term in office and everyone but one in their first two years in office. So we have to be very vigilant that we don't slip into Ray- a similar situation. Our executive producer, Rachel Wurstman, just in Rachel Stovall, never again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, Sam, introduce into your, your historical brew here having a Republican president and a Republican House and Republican Senate. What difference does that make? Um, actually, that ends up pointing to the best overall performance that we have seen looking at uh, all different kinds of mixtures of um, Republican, Democratic-controlled Congresses, uh, as well as uh, Republican or Democratic-controlled presidencies. Whenever you have a totally unified government, the S&P has gained an average of 15.1% uh, under those scenarios. So the annual average annual return was 15 percent essentially um, still pretty good was when you had a totally democratic controlled up about 10 percent it's when we start having um, a unified Congress but a different president or even a split Congress that things look a lot less enticing but right now it's it's sort of the best of all worlds but the number of observations has been pretty low at only six times going back to World War II Great time to talk to Sam Stovall. We're going to rip up the strict uh, script. Dollar reverses, dollar surges right out to renewed strength on that blended index, DXY. We're not there, but there any moment. 100.47, up a nice half a percent just in a matter of minutes. Sam Stovall, when you structure your sector bets, when you structure your equity ownership, do you wrap it around multinationals and dollar dynamics? 
I, I think you have to consider that because um, S&P Dow Jones Indices estimates that uh, at least 45% of the revenues for the companies in the 500 come from overseas operations. And I think that's also one reason why tech did not participate early on in this Trump rally is because it has the highest overseas exposure. And the worry was that with the emphasis on growth, uh, the likelihood that the Fed would then continue to raise rates and maybe even become a bit more aggressive, yeah. that would result in a stronger dollar and uh, slow uh, the growth in earnings for technology. Are we anywhere near nifty 50 valuations? Yes. Uh, if the bull market ended on August 15th, it would have been the second most expensive bull market top since World War II with a trailing gap P.E. of more than 25 times versus the near 32 that we saw when the tech bubble finally burst. Sam, when I, when I look at these data from today, CPI, housing starts, initial jobless claims, I wonder uh, how important they are to a guy like you when you are waiting for Congress to do something, when Congress is, is purportedly going to do something as soon as President, uh, when, as soon as Donald Trump becomes President uh, Trump. In other words, how important is the data right now given how much it could change? Well, I think it's very important because you're constantly taking the pulse of the economy. Uh, we all have heard that bull markets don't die of old age. Uh, and right now, this bull market is in its eight, uh, seven and a half years. And we, we've got almost four months to go before we celebrate our eighth birthday. So we're way beyond the average of about five years in duration. But Bull markets don't die of old age. They die of fright. And what they are most afraid of is recessions. I look to three indicators that I find very helpful. First off, housing starts. Uh, typically, we have needed to see a 30% year-on-year decline in housing starts before we are either in or headed for recession. Add to that consumer confidence. It's not because construction is so important, but consumer confidence is. We have traditionally needed at least a 20% year-on-year decline in the University of Michigan's consumer survey to point to recession. And then finally, a, uh, on a rolling six-month basis, we've traditionally needed to see a negative reading for leading economic indicators. So housing starts, consumer confidence, leading economic indicators, I find are very helpful uh, indicators as to whether we have something to fear. And right now it says no. How have you processed what we've seen in equities since uh, Tuesday of, of last week? I've probably talked to a dozen, 20 equity strategists since then, and each to a T has said, you know, it's, it's too early to speculate on, on what policy may or may not be. We're not going to go all in on utilities, say, or go all in on, on health care. Yet we, we've seen those sectors really rising. We've seen technology falling. How, how is that happening? <laughs> Who's the culpable party there? Well, I think it was certainly a knee-jerk reaction. Remember that investors are no better than hyperactive first graders playing musical chairs, always trying to out-anticipate the other. So that's what I think they were trying to do, was snap back into what could be the potential beneficiaries. But we all know that even though Congress is Republican, it's still pretty conservative. And I think for every dollar that will be spent in terms of stimulus, they're going to want to find a dollar to take away in terms of subsidies. So we, we already have a debt-to-GDP yeah. ratio that's near 100 percent. We don't want to make that worse. Sam, the cliche, which always the radar goes up, is it's the most unloved bull market since time began. 
And you, I think of Anthony Dwyer at Canaccord and a select others, Brian Belsky, Abby Joseph Cohen, for that matter, have just been resilient bulls. Is it still the most unloved bull market since time began? I wouldn't uh, be able to say since time began, but I certainly feel that it is unloved. You know, it's it's like the eighth grader who keeps going across the gymnasium floor to ask someone to dance, and they keep getting turned down. Right in this seventh year of this bull market, we declined 4.3%. Every bull market since World War II that lasted three years or longer went out with a bang, not a whimper. So if we did end up slipping into a uh, a, bull, a bear market uh, without registering a gain of anywhere from 16 to 36% as the other bull markets did, um, it would be the first time since World War II that that had happened. So I think usually the market tends to surprise the greatest number of people, and right now the greatest number yeah. of people would be surprised if the market did well rather than finally succumb. Which sector just seems most attractive, most reasonable, most commonsensical? Um, well, I, I think looking at um, some areas like uh, what is it? Looking at industrials, um, technology is trading at a 20% relative premium, uh, relative discount to the S&P over the past 25 years. And this is based on a median where we're removing a lot of the excesses of the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at tech, looking at um, industrials, but also take a look at healthcare, uh, trading at a 20% relative uh, discount. Uh, this is a group that just was absolutely hated because of the expectation that we would have price controls, et cetera, on pharmaceutical and biotech. Right. Uh, last year, we had more entities approved by the FDA than in the prior 20 years. So I think there's good longer term potential. Uh, right. It just needs to have some time to get out of its own way. Very valuable. Sam Stovall, thank you so much for CFRA, S&P. Uh, global. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.